This is Delicious Revolution, a show about food. I would like us to treat each other more like neighbors, and I, I, I have a feeling. I can't quite put my a word on it, but there's this great feeling when、um, I can do something for someone not for money. And farmers, and and a lot of people who aren't farmers, but who make similar amounts of money or similar amounts of profit margins, get squeezed. And they get squeezed. They don't get to feel that feeling very often, or they have to turn down opportunities. To yes, maybe it. Maybe you can call it giving food away, because this is something that actually feels really good to me and a lot of farmers I know in this area. So I do think there's seeds of, of relationship building that could give us a little more something to hang our hat on. A little besides, how much money did you make this year off your farm? What about an element of like, hey, were you involved with that project that completely eliminated that thing that we all think is terrible, which is kids not knowing where their next meal is coming from? Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place, made by Chelsea Wills and me, Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of the food movement. Including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists, and who have a vision for a different food system. This first season of Delicious Revolution, we talked to friends who are deeply engaged with many aspects of food, and who have inspired us over years with their thoughts and stories. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and you can find us at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. This is Devin Sampson here today with Joey Smith at his home at Let's Go Farm in Santa Rosa, California. Joey grew up here on this land. He now grows a very wide variety of vegetables bound for a、uh, for a CSA and for the Windsor Farmers Market. This is his fifth season farming here. Yes, and、uh, and I've had the pleasure of seeing this field transformed from pasture to super diverse vegetable and flowers. Over that time,、uh, Joey also works and teaches at Shone Farm, which belongs to Santa Rosa Junior College, one of the legendarily great community colleges here in Sonoma County. Joey teaches hands-on vegetable farming there, and recently taught a course on community-supported agriculture. I've been friends with Joey since we met at UC Santa Cruz about twelve years ago,、mm-hmm. and when we, we were both involved in the very exciting early days of the community agroecology network. I spent some time to get, or we spent time together in rural Nicaragua, and I know that Joey's time spent in the small coffee farming community of Coto Bruce in Costa Rica has influenced the ways that Joey sees food and farming. And over the years, we've talked a lot about our experiences in Latin America.、Hmm. Joey is also like me, an alum of Food First internship program. So, Joey, welcome to Delicious Revolution. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Hey, can we go back to rural Nicaragua before too long? Yeah, yeah, we can.、Great. I want to start. It's it's just about to get dark, but I want to start by looking out over this field and just describe for me what you see. Well, yeah, I couldn't be happier to be here. This is the place I feel the most、uh, at home and comfortable. And I spent most of today away from it, <laughs> and so it was good to come down here. And 
I'm looking at some corn that we planted on July 31st, which was a little bit late. We benefited from several uh, heat waves. I think we've had seven days over 100 degrees, and the corn loved that. I'm looking at a hoop house we built last year um, that has okra and produced lots of shallots, um, squash, basil. I'm looking at our wall of tomatoes that's finally starting to say goodbye. Um, and I'm not going to go over everything I see because I think we're at about 55 different crops. But um, this is my also my favorite time of day. So I, the flowers take on a different color. We're doing um, snapdragons and ageratum and uh, good old zinnias and black-eyed Susans. And I see the last few sunflowers because it's October. Seventh. Wow. So, Joey, you grew up here, right, on, on this land. Did you ever imagine you would be farming here? I never did. I never did. And uh, I, we used to grow vegetables over the leach field growing up. And I was, I wasn't. It was important to me. I liked it. I remember only liking tomatoes that came out of that little area. But no, this was always sheep pasture. And even after I decided to grow food, it took me a year and a half to even conceive of getting a tractor in here and growing vegetables because I always think of thought of it and sometimes still do five years later as a sheep pasture. Um, so it's... There's this nice element of, um, especially the other people who come here with ideas, there's this really nice element of, oh, I never thought of that. Even though I feel really close to this place, um, I, I've had some really interesting people come up and talk about the upper pasture and orchard ideas and things we can do that continue to kind of stretch my ideas. Was there a moment when you knew you were going to farm? I don't think there was one moment, Devin. I think um, it, it. I know when it happened, which was sometime in 2008. Um, and I was working at a nursery and I was working with plants. And I realized that I loved being outdoors and working with people and plants. And of course, I was, I was in the East Bay, this great scene for for pushing for fairer and ecologically grown food and access to food. And I just realized I wanted to grow food for, I wanted to know how to do it for more than me and my family. And um, one word we have for that is farming. But I really, the, to be precise, wanted to know how to do it. Um, and so I applied to several places to learn how to farm. At that time in the East Bay, you were working, if I remember right, you had two different jobs there. One was working at Berkeley Hort, the, the nursery there, and the other one was as an intern at Food First. That's right. Yeah, they overlapped a bit. Um, yeah, 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 with you. <laughs> yeah. And so you were thinking about advocacy there, and you were thinking about growing things. It's, 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 a, great, it's a great point. You know, I... I I never went to college thinking I wanted to farm. Uh, it took me a few years to even start studying sustainable agriculture. My initial interest was um, politics, and I got into environmental studies that way at Santa Cruz. 
And I never saw myself as a food producer. I really looked at the people doing that. I, there was still this feeling of like you had to be born into it. And even though I grew up here in the country, we were not farmers. Um, my parents are pediatricians, actually. Um, and, but I was very drawn to the advocacy. I saw myself in the fight for, let's, in a word, real food, ecologically grown food that's accessible. Um, I'm really excited about the idea that humans can be a positive force through agriculture, this way we interact with the planet on the biggest scale. And so I saw myself in that realm. And then I saw friends that I, that you and I went to school with and friends I'd met later uh, having success. Ryan, Toby, uh, uh, a, a bunch of people are racing through my mind. And I thought, you know, it's not, even though it's not, it's not rocket science, it's infinitely complex. I just had an inkling of that then, but that's good for me. That's really stimulating. I have kind of a short attention span. And so, um, the advocacy and I, and I, I felt like if I don't know how to do this, um, I don't know that I can speak to it as well. So at first they seemed adversarial, you know, uh, you can be an advocacy or be farming, but I feel like, um, my time at food first and then my time dabbling at other farms set me up really well to be an intern for two years at a farm in the South Bay and really be able to thread the needle. I, I feel like I've done that pretty well. Um, and we all got to do our strength and I'm, I'm not a hundred percent farmer and I'm not a hundred percent advocate. Um, but I feel like I'm a good liaison between the two. Um, and here we are. That's actually one of the, one of the things we were thinking about with this podcast is let's talk to people who do have both a practice about food and, um, and are thinkers about food and food systems. And, um, how does, talk a little bit more about the activism that's important to you and how being a farmer um, shapes the activism you do and the voice that you have. Sure. I think, I think it's essential. Uh, here we are 15 years into this century, but I want a story we tell about this century to be that we figured out how to grow food in a way with far less or none uh, toxins. I think it's crazy that we put poison on our food. Um, and we haven't, the only reason it doesn't seem crazy is we have this narrative that that it's the only way to do it. And so I want different narratives. And so my farming on this acre and a third and growing 50 plus crops is a, a sort of activism or maybe the better word is an edu- you know an education because I bring people out. My farm is called Let's Go Farm. I'm trying to get people excited about the possibility of growing on different scales. So I don't, I don't really try to attack the big scale guys and, and women. Um, but I'm trying to show an alternative. Um, so for me, that feels like it. And then we have, I just got, you know, I didn't choose to get born in Sonoma County, but here I am. And we have this beautiful burgeoning, um, small and mid-sized farm movement, um, 
of a, a fair amount of people like me not born into farming who feel that it's accessible or who feel like it's a vehicle for um, their uh, their ideas about community, about supporting each other. Um, so I could probably keep rambling, but I want to, I think I'd leave it at that, which is that I, you know, I, it's very important for me to have this be a transparent farm, invite people out. Um, anybody listening to this, you should give me a call. Um, and if I may say so to answer that same question, it's why I was drawn to the junior college farm, which is a really unique place where we bring lots of people out to show that carrots, you know, on one level, carrots grow in the ground and apples grow on trees. There's a fair amount of people that that is mind blowing to, or people who were raised and think that, you know, uh, Roundup and herbicides are the only way to control weeds and we can show an alternative. So it's part and parcel. It's, it's, I, 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 I feel that strongly. Oh boy. we didn't even get into like the heirloom expo being rooted here, but that's another topic. <laughs> you write these amazing, um, newsletters every time your CSA box goes out. Um, always about what's in the CSA box, always about what you've been doing on the farm, but also always about something broader. Um, how did you start writing that? And, and how, why is that important to you? Ah, uh, Devin, I, I used to think that if I didn't write, I would go insane. I love writing. Um, I farmed for a CSA six of the last seven years, and the year that I didn't was my first year on this land, and I didn't want to take people's money without knowing I could produce food, right? And that's what you do with a CSA in the beginning. And I missed it. I really missed it. Um, so I don't know. I, I spent, I sometimes I think about it while I'm farming, but usually I sit down and, um, think about how to bring people, cause not everyone picks up their box here. Um, and I want to bring the farm to people. I think, I think there's a really exciting potential. I think, you know, CSAs are getting to be like, almost middle-aged or adolescent or something. So maybe there's a little, the novelty's worn off, but I am a huge believer in that we have so far to go in bringing a little bit of what it takes to grow food to people who aren't involved with it. Um, so whether that's saying you too can grow this sunflower, it's really easy. Or if it's just like, Hey, there's a reason that these tomatoes look different than the ones in the store. So I don't know. It's more of a, it never feels like a chore. So you've taught a class now about CSAs. You've, it's always been an important part of your model, even that you're the, you weren't doing one. You knew that that's where you were, you were going with this. Yeah. Um, and I think probably most people listening will have a pretty good idea of what a, the concept of a CSA is. But I, I'd like to hear from you, like what, what your vision of it is. And, mm -hmm. and maybe to put it another way, like what, you hope your students take away from your class on CSS. Yeah, thanks. It's good. It's good for me to keep uh, to keep that alive. So thank you for that question. I I think a big one for my students to take is I'd like them to look at the fact that CSAs are different in 2015 than they were in 2010, and that we can assume that in 2020 they'll look different than today, and that's not a bad thing. 
and we can't get stodgy um, and rest on our laurels and say, well, here we came up with this model, let's keep it that way. Here's what's exciting to me about CSAs is it's a, it tends to be a farmer-driven process. And we've studied how it's become less and less. It's become more of a consumer base, you know. Now you can check a box online and say, no eggplants ever. And I, maybe I do get a little stodgy on that. I believe people, if they don't like eggplants, should take their box and knock on the door of their neighbor and bring their neighbor eggplants or find out who does want eggplants, um, for example. Um, it's, it's, I like to focus on the, the, um, dare I say, revolutionary idea of giving uh, the producer of one of your goods and, and that most elemental one being food, giving them your support through money or labor, and, and here it tends, it's money, before you get a product. Um, there's faith in that. There's trust. I think we need those things more in this society. Uh, and not to get too abstract about it. It's not abstract. They earned that money. And I'm asking for it up front. And they are sharing the risk and the reward. And um, I think that's there's beauty in that. Uh, and then just on very practical terms, I saw in Costa Rica the opposite of that, where there were 25%, like regularly, 25% interest on loans. 20%, 25%. This These this co-op that I work with could never get out from the burden from day one. Um, the more I research about, you know, I learned a lot about farming in, in Central America, but since coming back, you look at the farmers in this country, uh, many live under the poverty line. Many farmers are food producers, no matter if they're doing a thousand acres or 3000 acres or 500 acres or if they're smaller like me, they're um, they're uh, they're qualifying for for food stamps, um, and so I want to I I I don't want to let CSA go towards that direction where um, where we lose that that beauty and that that exciting alternative to a traditional go to the store, pick out what you want, and pay for it. So there's kind of a different kind of commitment to each other in in community supported agriculture is that makes sense and and what does it do does it do something does it influence your farming practices does mm-hmm. it and how and what does it do for your business yeah well there's two things one thing i want to say is mm-hmm. yeah some people people often focus on the agriculture part and uh-huh. they forget about the community uh-huh. and the yeah. support part and those are those are it's a three-legged stool those the community and the support are huge and there's flexible ways to do that. I'm so excited to see proliferations of milk CSAs and meat CSAs. Um, uh, community-supported writing, my friend Maisie did, you know. Or, um, but in a word, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we grow... There's certain crops that we grow, like broccoli We don't and celery. We don't make money off them at the market. I'm not growing them for the restaurant we sell to or the co-op. I'm growing them for the CSA. Um, and there is, that's a two way street in that I get to grow celery and broccoli crops that I wouldn't otherwise. Um, and then that commitment, I mean, 
you know, I don't want to get too sentimental about it, but these are people, you know, I, there are people in my CS who eat my food that weren't born yet when I started the CSA and it's only four years old. Um, there's people who were in my CSA the first year who are not living anymore and I carry them with me. Uh, and I, I think about them when I'm sowing seeds and weeding and, um, deciding whether to go lay down or put another half hour in. Uh, yeah. How has it been? I don't know. There's, there's not many people I think I can ask this to, but, um, what's it like to make a living farming five years into it? Mm. Well, if I was better at record keeping and numbers, uh, I could tell you it could be a more informed answer. Um, but I'll, yeah, be honest. I, uh, I've spent most of this podcast talking about, um, this conversation, mm-hmm. talking about my farm here, let's go farm. Um, I think the phrase is labor of love. I mean, we we broke even last year for the first time, which means we didn't the first three years, which means any money we make this year will pay off uh, from those. Um, but I'm really glad you asked because it's, I want to see the, the, the world I want to live in, people who want to grow food can make a living doing it. So in one way, I'm trying to showcase that, but in another, like less abstract way, I'm very happy working another job. I mean, I get to work with amazing students and faculty and people at this other beautiful farm. And I'm, I'm very happy having that be my main income, my spending money, my money for bills. Um, and then kind of gently coaxing this farm. Um, I don't ask it to do the things that a lot of farmers have to ask their land um, to do. Um, And I mean specifically generate a high profit. Um, So we'll just see on that. You know, I don't, I don't want to sidestep that question because there actually is an interesting distinction where maybe, so number one, I want to be clear. I want people who want to grow food and who find an affinity and a calling towards it to be able to make a living. I don't want them to be under the poverty line. So there we can go off in one direction. But on another, I also want everybody to know what it takes to grow food. And so I see in our generation and and people uh, maybe who are 18 to 40 right now, this burgeoning interest in ag, to be able to do their their day job and know what it takes to farm. So a CSA is part of that. Farm tours are part of that. Um, there's, I want people to feel involved in their food system. I think that's probably the only way we're going to make lasting change um, because we can't just ha- hope that, you know, regenerative and sustainable agriculture is that it's a fad that will, you know, keep its star will keep rising. Those that we, it's too important for it to be a fat. Um, you know, there was a whole lot of articles a few years ago about, you know, college kids going off and learning to farm in the summertime. And, and that had this, I was happy to see it, but had this, the media was trying to say, trying to throw it into this whole narrative of, of a fad. And it's, this is, there's, there's life and death issues here. Um, and there's, um, I mean that for species and I mean that for people and the people who grow our food. Um, 
So I take it really seriously. And I'd like to think that, and I haven't articulated it that well to myself, so I don't know that I'm doing a great job here, but I do want people who work other jobs to feel connected to the food that they're eating. And so maybe the livelihood element, you know, um, maybe it gets over overemphasized. Um, you know, this country has something like 310 million people. I think we have less than a million farmers. I should check those numbers. Um, even if a hundred million of those people are kids, you know, we're under, we're at like half a percent in my wildest dreams. Is that ever going to go up to 1% or 2% or 3%? Yeah. My wildest dreams. Is that going to get to 5% in this country? I don't think so. So we should, we should, um, think about those people. Maybe they are listening right now. I'm, I'm not, I, I wouldn't want to be so prescriptive to say everybody go back to the land. I think they tried that in the cultural revolution and it didn't work so well in, in China. Um, I, but I think it's very fair to ask, do you know how your food was grown? If you don't, are there things in your community, uh, that, that can reach out to you and not just if you're an outdoorsy type or liberal or anything, but just the basics. You eat food. So do you know where, do you know something about where it came from? As you know, that, that Chelsea and I tried for one season to farm. We were mostly farming. Paper wing. Um, yeah, we were mostly farming flowers, also some vegetables. And you helped us out a lot with a lot of advice and a lot of help growing stuff. Um, but we decided it wasn't, it wasn't what we wanted to do. It was hard, hard work. And I've never eaten so poorly as I did the year that mm. I farmed, ironically, because I never had time to cook. But, um, I also feel like I, I learned a tremendous amount about that. So I'm, I'm not part of that half a percent, but we feed a lot out of the garden and I learned a ton about farming by trying and failing. That's a great example. Uh, I, yes, I think about that sometimes because I don't, I don't know what I'm doing in 20 years. I want to be farming. Um, but more importantly, I want to use this time to show people, you know, and not to, not to keep saying that, but to show people what, what's involved and to show people the, the beauty of it. I mean, and the experimentation you can do and the color and the flavor. Um, and I, I just think it's going to, there is no silver bullet. There is no one way to fix our food system. And I do think it's broken. I think that that's, um, our food system is not getting nutritious food to everyone. And I do want to spend a little time talking about that today, which is that I want to walk around in a world where no matter what your politics, food is seen as a right. And so a right to me means you can't, it can't be taken away. It is yours. Um, it is ours. And we have a lot of work to do in that direction. And I, and so I'm so curious, and I think Sonoma County can be a hub for this. Um, it's just people asking lots of questions. How can we do it? How can we, how can we get to that point? Um, you and I were talking the other day, like, let's not wait till we're in our sixties to, to eliminate hunger in this county. We have all the ingredients. We even have the political will. So let's put those pieces together. Um, and then see what we can do from there. 
Um, but if people don't, you know, if people are eating really well uh, in part of the county and lots of other people are not, that's not, that's not, that's not what we're going for. We were talking when we were scheduling this interview, actually, we were talking on the phone and you talked to me about this idea you have about, about, about steps to take, a policy to, to move towards eliminating hunger in Sonoma County. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's something close to my heart. Uh, I'd rather... I don't want to run a farm for 30 years and in 30 years have things look like they do today. We've made great strides, but the 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 inequality to access to good food, to, to ecologically grown food is... Um, deeply disturbing to me. It keeps me up at night. Um, and I'm tossing around an idea that I was inspired by. I learned to farm down at Hidden Villa, um, which is in Los Altos. And I don't know, maybe you can put a link up to that or something. It's a great farm that also is very public and people should go see. And we got a grant from a foundation to grow food for Mountain View Community Services Agency, which let's just call the food bank. And that bit of money, and I never actually knew exactly how much it was, but it was, it was, um, it was enough. It was not a lot, but it was enough to make it worth our while to grow food specifically for the food bank. To plan into our, pl- our farm season and to plan into our day to harvest for the food bank. Um, A volunteer with the food bank would swing by the next day, pick it up in our reusable lugs. He'd drop off the empties, bring the full ones over, and bring them to the food bank. And once a year, uh, the, the clients of this food bank, the people who ate food from this food bank, would come out to the farm. And again, like that's that touched me because the story of our food is important. I think it gets fetishized sometimes, but it's really important to see it. Um, So anyway, that was six years ago, seven years ago. And it's always been in my mind. And I think maybe it's a foundation grant, but maybe there's other funding sources. Um, And I'm going to leave that broad in this, during this conversation, but I think we should all think about it. Um, but the idea would be to get, to incentivize farmers to grow food for the food bank. Right now, if you, if I took a survey of 10 farmers that came to mind, I'd probably get a few who bring their food to, um, food banks. I'd get a fair amount who said they wish they could do more, but they don't have the, you know, they're, they're basically losing money to do it. Um, or there's a fair amount who say, ah, oh, you know, I had a negative experience with people who gleaned and they messed up my crops and I, it's too important to me, uh, financially and also just in a, you know, this is my farm to have people come out and, and mess up your, your plants. So how do we incentivize farms? And, and my idea is not too much money. Maybe it's $5,000, maybe it's $10,000, um, to have farmers, what you ask them, we take a survey or something, what would it take to grow a little, you know, to grow some percentage for the food bank? And 
I guarantee you 10 out of 10 of those farmers would say someone coming along and picking it up, doing a route would help so much. You know, once a year in this county, the, the, the poor male, male people pick up food for the food bank. And I always think of them like, that's kind of them, but, but do they, you know, that's a lot of lifting. Um, so my idea, and I'm floating it, and I want feedback on it, and I want to collaborate, I really want to keep this down to earth and not too abstract, is like, I want your listeners to contact me if they have great ideas. But the idea is, they get a little extra money, whatever it is, it's not $100,000. My idea really means just a little, just to make it worth it. Because most farmers want to share their food, they want it to be appreciated. Um, but they can't give it away for free. Um, and then the flip side of that is the farm or ranch or garden has to make themselves available to uh, public access. So is that two school field trips a year? Is that bringing people out from the food bank to, to if not glean, then to walk around and see where the food they've been enjoying all year came from? Um, I think this, uh, and again, it's not really my idea because I saw it down in, in Santa Clara County, but we need that up here. Um, uh, I also have some idea. I think all food banks should have gardens because here I'm on an acre and a third and we're producing thousands of pounds of food of, and, and specifically food that, mm, you don't see a lot of in food banks. You don't see a whole lot of eggplant. You do see a lot of rice aroni and, and packaged food. Um, so it's got to, it's not just food, <laughs> you know, capital F food. It's, it's healthy food and it's food that people want to eat. So part of what I love about the idea is that it's, um, for the poor often get the leftovers and the dregs of yeah. the food system. Um, but this is food especially produced for people who can't afford it. Um, it's firsts, it's not seconds. Yeah. Um, and another thing I like about it is that it, it's a public investment in farms being around mm -hmm. and serving a public good. And where it's like, I think there's a lot of people, and we were talking a little bit about that, that feeling of is, is there a fad going on with farming? But I think that one of the ways that it, it might be is that a lot of people, with big dedications towards a more just food system end up spending their their working lives growing food for the well relatively mm. wealthy people in the communities who can who can pay higher prices for right. for food um and, and so i i really love that idea for those reasons like is there a public investment in both having farms around and in um they're not being hunger yeah, I really appreciate that because I, I mean, I, you know, I am trying to keep it broad, but I, I think let's throw out on the table. One of those would be a, a, a tiny tax, um, that basically is saying, and I would, I would stump for this tax. And I think we could get people who are generally anti-tax on board to say, are farms, are farms valuable? You know, um, do we want them in our community? And here's another one. Does having, does that vision of looking around you, walking down the street, driving, and having no one lacking food, does that appeal to you? 
And it doesn't have to be a tax, but a tax is kind of a neat way to basically say we're all in this. And I'm talking a hundredth of a percent. It doesn't have to be much. And again, because I'm not saying that the farm should grow all for the food bank. Um, I'm saying, wouldn't it be interesting if we can get farms to be more transparent, open themselves up to school kids, which they might want to do anyway, but again, not have the profit margins are so thin in agriculture, whether you're small, whether you're a micro farm, small farm, medium farm, or huge farm. Um, <laughs> there is an interesting breakdown of it's about 99% people making very little money and 1% making a lot of money off ag. Um, so a tax is one way, um, that just bouncing off what you said, um, can we, can we come together on this? Um, can we use, uh, can we create hubs, um, where that food goes that maybe isn't a food bank? I mean, I always like to think about like, <laughs> not having food banks. You know, I, I fear that they, the fact that if they get too institutionalized, then we are existing off this idea that food is not a right, but it's this, um, how would I put it? You know, if we normalize food banks, then that kind of normalizes hunger. And, and charity is the answer. Mm-hmm. And not, charity being the answer. Like, that you're not entitled to eating, but but you're at the subject of whatever yeah. whatever charity someone offers. The kindness of strangers is a nice thing and something I, I think is a beautiful thing, but it's that's not what I mean when I say a right. A right is like your right to free speech and all those other rights we have. They're supposed to be inalienable. Yeah. It's it's such an interesting idea, Joey. And one thing it makes me think of is Brazil's Cerro Hambre, the Zero Hunger Program that's been replicated again in Nicaragua and a few other places. I think it's a significant amount of the of the country's um, budget goes to eliminating hunger, and the significant amount of the food that's bought is earmarked to be to buy food from small local farms. I want to look more into that. I want to get together again to be very clear. I I want to get together with people listening to this and sit down at a table and pool those resources because I don't know much about Cerro Hambre, um, but it sounds great and it sounds important. And and can we talk to people doing that and say, oh, what's not working there? But again, with this central core idea of everybody gets to eat, you know, I I uh, I the reason I'm focusing on Sonoma County is I live here. And it's just so blatant that we have all the resources to make it happen. It's so clear. But then the idea would be um, use that as a case study and look what worked and what didn't and do it in other places. Um, so for people who aren't here, I, I guess this is other part of me that, that because, just because I've spent a lot of my academic energy on arguing that that hunger is not caused by mm. not having enough food yeah. but it's caused by inequality it's caused by poverty and it's caused by racialized and and um and ingrained class inequalities that that make it hard for people to access food what does a plan so what does a plan like that do I have the feeling that you're asking for something more than producing more food. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It, I think it has something to do with, I mean, let's just say it's 
let's say 40 farms are involved in this. You know, it's not everybody. It's not obligatory in any way. You sign up. Um, you say, I'm interested. Um, and uh, there's a pool of money, and I don't know where that's coming from. Maybe that tax, maybe a foundation. I don't know. Um, and it's generally folded into your farm budget. And no, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I don't think I'm saying go out and buy more land. You know, there's already lots, a lot of interesting programs that do that. I think I'm saying, <laughs> I think I am saying in what those 40 farms produce and what those 80 farms, what those X number of farms produce, we can take a significant chunk out of, um, the deficit of food of good food right i don't know if that's a hundred percent maybe maybe it still involves things shipped up from elsewhere but isn't there something exciting about sort of the the kind of isn't there something we can be proud of sonoma county can feed itself right um what sure it involves yeah i would say to keep my answer short uh, no, it's not necessarily about producing more. I mean, here we are in my field. I don't have room to expand. I want more of this food. I want the food that I produce, which is part of the labor that I put into it, to go to fix this problem. It's a problem. I want it, I want people to be talking about the fact that it's a problem. I don't think I'm saying, um, you know, annex the, the neighbor's land and, and do more there. And I, I'm curious about that. I, I, I want to sit down at that table and look at maps of farms and look at, really talk to farmers. How much food, what do you think went to waste on your, on your f- farm last year? Um, and start bouncing numbers around. Um, yeah. There, there, it seems to me like you, you talked about CSAs being I think you said you said there it, there's a revolutionary way that it changes the relationship between the food buyer and the food producer. Is it possible that there's something equally revolutionary possible about the relationship between a food grower and um, a re- people who are now recipients of charity? Mm. That is a great question. You know, uh, I. I, I, I want, I want us to, I want, I would like us to treat each other more like neighbors. And I, I, I have a feeling, I can't quite put my, a word on it, but there's this great feeling when, um, I can do something for someone, not for money and farmers and, and a lot of people who aren't farmers, but who make similar amounts of money or similar amounts of profit margin get squeezed and they get squeezed. They don't get to feel that feeling very often, or they have to turn down opportunities to, yes, maybe it, maybe you can call it giving food away. Cause this is something that actually feels really good to me and a lot of farmers I know in this area. Um, but it's impractical. Every, you know, business class is telling you not to do that. Um, so I do think there's seeds of of, of uh, relationship building that could that could um, give us a little more something to hang our hat on. A little besides how much money did you make this year off your farm? Uh, what about an element of like 
hey, were you in, you know, were you in, were you involved with that project that, that completely eliminated that thing that we all think is terrible, which is kids not knowing where their next meal is coming from, um, seniors, uh, not knowing where their next meal is coming from, <laughs> people <laughs> between, ki- you know, the rest of people. Um, the last I heard is one in six people in this county, this wealthy county, um, are on food assistance. Um, and maybe it's one in seven, one in se- I think I saw that on a billboard. Um, you know, can, uh, so I do think there's seeds in that CSA model, which is that here these people gave me money and I'm giving them food. And one, per, one way of saying that is they bought food for me. But I love that idea that maybe we don't have to describe it that way. Um, I fed you. You allowed me to do the work I love. I want to talk about a couple of um, people who have been influential in, as farmers to you. Both here, right, just a walk from this farm and also in far away in Costa Rica, especially because you have this vision of a more just world and a more just food system. And you have this conviction that being a farmer is a good place to come at that from. Mm -hmm. And um, um, what did you learn from your neighbor, Dick Wagner? And what did you learn from people in Costa Rica about that? Uh, Thank you for evoking him. Um, Oh, Dick, we're, um, we're going to go visit him Monday. Um, he used to live right down the road. He taught my parents everything they knew about raising sheep. Um, Dick raised, Dick and his wife raised goats, sheep, and pigs. It's very interesting, actually. Uh, this man, he had a former life of, as an auto mechanic. I don't know if I ever told you that. Um, down in Southern California, Redondo Beach. And like many people in the early 70s, <laughs> he wanted to work the land. And he didn't know much about it. Anyway. I can go, I can already see myself going off, going on for a half hour about Dick, but I, uh, Dick and Barbara, um, cause they were very much a team. Well, let me, let me ask you this. What, what was their reaction when you started farming here? Oh, well, <laughs> I remember Dick saying, he, he kind of, he often said, no one wants to farm and we're the last farm in this valley. And even after a couple of years of me farming this valley, he kept saying that. And I kept trying to point out that, you know, there is this kind of cool thing happening where people do want to work the land again. Um, So his reaction was mixed. (laughs) But he, in the sense that we could bond over the animals, uh, I... They're not part of my farm, but we have on the property uh, some sheep and a pony and some chickens. Um, And we've had many other different animals. Um, His empathy for the animals, the fact that it got harder each year to to slaughter his his, uh, goats and pigs and sheep, um, his attention to um, detail um, and making sure he was so proud of the fact he was the last grade B dairy in the 
County, I want to say. He's doing it out of an old 110-year-old redwood barn that you can still see if you drive down Wallace Road. And he was so proud that his, uh, I think it's the coliform count, the bacteria count in, in the milk, was lower than a grade A dairy. Um, and why? Because he did his work with uh, a lot of intention and he spent most of his time thinking about those animals, their welfare, and the people who would be uh, eventually drinking that milk or eating that uh, cheese. Um, I remember writing Dick, uh, Dick and Barbara postcards from Costa Rica, actually, and telling them about this uh, amazing coffee farm that I got to live on for three months, but it felt like longer. Um, and so I would just, I was making a list before you came here of, of mentors of mine and maybe, maybe we'll get into them. Maybe I should just write more about them cause it's too long to get into now, but, but I would be remiss to, to not mention, uh, Roberto Jimenez, uh, who I lived with. And again, his wife, Noemi, they are very much a team. Neither of them could have success without the other's hard work, just like Dick and Barbara. Anyway, I remember writing to Dick when I was 20 and I lived down there and, and writing to him and saying, you know, with this new respect, you know, Dick, going over there as a teenager, I'd help out. I was a ranch hand, whatever needed doing, I'd help out with. Um, and I liked it, but it wasn't a very deep connection. And I'd never lived on a true working farm until I was 20. And, and Roberto, uh, uh, I sure wish I could show him this place because um, I think it's fair to say that without those three months, uh, I, don't, I don't know that it would have sparked me uh, to farm. I guess there's been a lot of people along the way, but, um, you know, here's a family similarly. I mean, to, to your listeners know that coffee is the second most traded commodity on this planet behind oil. I mean, not even behind like rice or wheat or corn, behind oil. Um, here, he, here is a small landowner um, farming land, <laughs> uh, five hectares, I think, in this globalized system. And the dignity with which he approached it um, tr- really inspired me. And the fact that he was on his land 300 and let's say 363 days of the year, almost every day. Um, The coffee people that he might never meet, that they were drinking, was tended by this person, these people, this family. Um, I know that now that I'm saying that, doesn't sound that crazy, but it it really opened my mind. Um, And I I appreciate you bringing them both up in the same breath because um, here I came back and saw Dick doing something very similar but with goats um with goat milk which is not a global commodity to the best of my knowledge (laughs) um and now everywhere i look i see it and i realize that that was happening before i was born and hope you know will be happening after i'm gone um that people's love of the land is something beautiful it's worth celebrating um, and again, makes me feel excited about and the 
non-fad element of of renewed interest in in agriculture and food is is um that it's sort of I, I do feel strongly that it in, enriches people's lives to know a little bit about where their food came from and to know <laughs> speaking of those CSA newsletters you know, to know what else I'm interested in you know they yeah generally speaking I'm talking about their food but sometimes I'm talking about a movie I saw um, or my friends who got married you know here here's some people I know that I love and and I was thinking about them when I picked your food, you know? So I, I, I think that's, I think, I, I think I'm done talking about Dick and Dick and Roberto right now, but, um, uh, let's just say really inspirational and, and always <laughs> often on my mind. Yeah. Awesome. And I, and I just wanted to, uh, one last question to tell, ask you to talk about, um, just, your favorite crops, your most exciting mm. crops, because you don't just grow the same things that every farm grows. You kind of go out of your way and you have a few real gems that are dear to your heart. Can you tell me about some of them? Yeah, well, 2015 is the year of the okra for me because uh, I didn't know you could grow okra until last year in Sonoma County. I thought you had to be down in Louisiana or Florida. I had no idea what it looked like. It's such an exciting plant. It's related to coffee, uh, excuse me, to chocolate, to cacao. It's related to cotton. It's related to hibiscus, and the flower is beautiful. Um, it's delicious, and people totally overestimate the sliminess. You just got to cook it right. Um, there's a way to cook things to maximize their sliminess, but, you know, high heat, go quick. Uh, breading it has been great, and... My nephews who have not learned, they're nine and five, they haven't learned those, you know, they haven't heard people saying okra is gross, so they don't think it's gross. They think it's like a kind of a cool green bean. So okra has been great, Devin. Um, I love my lettuce. Uh, that is a crop that has done well for me four out of five years, sells really well at the market. Um, and I am growing an, an open pollinated uh, type that uh, I got the seed for in 2010. It's called Devil's Ears. Uh, I'd never grown it. I sowed it with my other lettuce. And it's really cool. It starts out kind of greenish red, but then it starts twisting. And I'm sure that's how it got its name. It starts getting redder and redder and twisting. I'm sure one of its relatives is a deer tongue. It's got this kind of tongue shape tongue or ear shape it's like it almost have like this romanesco like geometry oh, it to it does it's got this spiral it you can't look at it and not get excited well i can't anyway <laughs> but i try to impart that on my cut i'm sure some of your listeners have bought this lettuce from me um actually can i tell you something well i'm just gonna tell you when i went in for my interview for shown <laughs> at the jc uh, i was I was so filled with excitement at this lettuce. I mean, these are at least pound and a half beautiful lettuces that, you know, that morning I was out there and I just kind of on a whim cut it and I brought it and I just plopped it on the table during my final interview, which was like, you know, are you qualified for this job? And I was kind of trying to say, this lettuce shows that I'm qualified for this job. <laughs> um, and uh, 
so I got it. That lettuce, the point of this story is I save the seed from it every year and I pick the most beautiful and the tastiest and the ones that don't uh, flower in the heat. And I save the seed from those ones and it pains me because I actually want to eat those or sell them. But I keep them in the ground and they flower and they go to seed. And here I am in my fifth year. Uh, it's not a stretch or crazy to say that I'm locally adapting it, not just to Sonoma County, not just to Santa Rosa, but this little piece of land. Um, um, that's terribly exciting. So, okay, before I keep going, so the okra, the lettuce. Um, this year we tried a bunch of things for the first time. Jerusalem artichokes. We did lovage, which is not very popular, and I might not grow it again, but it's an it's a cool flavor. Um, uh, we did um, parsnips for the first time, and drum roll being, we did chayotes. And chayotes, what do they call them in English? Do they have, do people, I, I, I think chayotes. one time I saw it in an old book called pear squash, because <laughs> they're kind of shaped like a pear. Anyway, we, uh, uh, a friend of mine who grew up in Mexico uh, 60 years ago, came up to Healdsburg when he was 17, uh, gave me some chayotes, and uh, I've, I've got a few on the plant right now, on the vine, and we love them. My nephews love them too, which is exciting. Joey, how can people follow along with what you're doing here, and, and how can people get in touch with you? I want to answer that, and there's one more crop I okay, want to talk okay, about, okay. which is the dry beans. I can't believe oh, I felt no. this. Oh, okay. I felt this twinge of like that I was neglecting them. But we grow dry beans because uh, I don't eat meat, uh, and I eat a lot of beans. And it's uh, these are kind of a classic. Every year, my CSA gets a newsletter about how important beans are, and that goes back to Roberto. We had this amazing. It was like the definition of agroecology, which was like. Notice the rainfall, sow these beans. Oh, there's a great word for it, but I don't remember where you sow the beans in the thatch. You oh, don't, you okay. don't, you don't bury them. You, you, you poke them with a stick, but you don't really plant them, um, in the, in the soil and you time it right. And then you check on them once. Um, and then you harvest them and the land wasn't necessarily his and it was a pretty benign use of it. Actually, probably fixed some nitrogen, brought it back, dried it on the lawn. Oh, so inspiring. Dry beans, we grow them even if it's not profitable, and we always will. And we get people thinking about one of these most basic foods that um, is an amazing plant family, they incredible diversity. It's a new world crop. Um, which so I could go on and on, but I just had to shout out my beans. Um, your question was how do people f find out about me? Yeah, how do people find yeah. out about you both locally on the internet? And how do yeah. people get in touch with you? Yeah, them? so one of these days we will follow the advice and get a website. Uh, maybe it will be this winter. Uh, but in the meantime, we have a Facebook page, uh, which is our website. Um, and that's actually kind of cool because we put photos on there and little updates. And that's just facebook.com slash let's go farm. Okay. Pretty easy. Yeah. Um, and you can find me at the Windsor Farmer's Market on Sundays. And it's a pretty good way to find me because um, I will continue talking your ear off about food sovereignty and dry beans and chayotes um, if there's not too many people behind you in line. 
Um, but I also, I mean, I could give you my phone number. Well, I'll put a farm, uh, farmletsgo at gmail.com is a, is probably the better way to get a hold of me or that Facebook page. And you can come out here and we can walk the farm and talk about what's on your mind. And, uh, just maybe you could bring your, bring your kids out. Um, we really like that. Um, they can, they can, uh, put they can make some memories that involve the outdoors um i think those are the best ways to get a hold of me farm let's go at gmail.com joey thank you so much when we um the vision for this first season of the podcast was to talk with friends who have through their experience and through over years of knowing each other have um, really shaped the way that we think about food and food systems and, uh, and visions for a more just future. And you really truly are one of those friends who has, has shaped that for me. So thank you so much. It's really my pleasure. I like the name delicious revolution. I really like that. I like the model. I can't wait to hear the other ones, the other people, um, you know, and um, we should do it again. We should do a part two, and we should um, we should just keep this conversation going because that's what it it's what it is. You know, you and I have been talking. What is it? Would you say twelve years? It's a conversation, and the conversation is getting more um, complex and exciting. Um, there's all these models that we didn't get to go into on this one, but we'll do it on the next one. And I really appreciate you asking me to be on. Thank you. Sounds good. Until until the next one. Then. All right. Sounds good. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place produced by Chelsea Wills and me, Devin Sampson. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and you can find us at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. You can get in touch with us there, too. If you like Delicious Revolution and you want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening.